Hi, I'm Alex Jump, and this is Focus on Health, a podcast dedicated to discussing and bringing to light the fundamental issues surrounding health and wellness in the food and beverage industry. This week, my guest is Ashton Berry, a hospitality activist, sommelier, and a beverage consultant. She's become a top activist and educator in our field by combining her 15 years of hospitality experience with a sociology degree from the University of Chicago. Hi everyone, I'm Alex Jump and this is Focus on Health. And today I am joined by a really incredible woman that I've had the pleasure of knowing for pretty much my entire career in the F&B industry, Ashton Berry. Hi Ashton. Hey, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing well, can't complain. Um, well, I, you know, I'm sure that a lot of people listening, you know, know who you are, um, but for anyone not listening, I'd love if you would just give maybe a little introduction to who you are and, and what you do and maybe how you got to where you are now. Uh, yeah, I've been in the industry now um, for almost 15 years off and on. Um, started off like a lot of people. Well, I shouldn't say a lot of people anymore, but back in the day when a lot of kind of service industry for entry-level jobs were actually occupied by high school and college students. Mm -hmm. Um, Primarily, you know, I got into the industry in high school and have been in it ever since off and on for the rest of my life. Um, And, but across that same journey, also just got immersed in a lot of other different uh, works specifically related to like community activating and, um, you know, prevention, care, things of that nature. Uh, And kind of at a certain point in my career, just started blending those things. Um, And then eventually started my own company, um, which a lot of people know Radical Exchange, which is most well known for Resistance Serve. Um, and, but I also have another company where I work with businesses to do equity, everything from equity audits to helping them create content, uh, that's centered around equity. And that could be in regards to racial ju- justice that can be in terms of gender, uh, it, that can be a host of many different things. Um, awesome. yeah, yeah, I was, that's what I do. I w- I was going to say, like, for everyone listening, like, what's the dumbed down version of an equity uh, audit, but you like pretty much nailed it. So um, really kind of, you know, pushing people and owners in our industry to, uh, to take a look at their businesses and, and find ways to, I guess, like, I like finding equity isn't really the right term. How would you say that? Like, you're pushing them to just challenge the norms and find ways to create more equality within our work? Well, an equity audit actually stops to take stock of how the business is already operating. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the audit that I use has 75 indicators um, that go through basically different branches of the business. And it basically is a really um, deep dive into not just the company culture, not just your hiring practice, but but every single thing about how the company operates and how that is either supporting certain people being able to navigate the company or hindering certain groups from uh, navigating the company. Um, And that looks at everything from uh, accessibility in terms of disabilities and neurodivergence that looks at uh, the intersections of those things with race and gender that looks at um, pay scales that it, it's everything. So it's really a stock of like where is the company and then a list of kind of like a prioritized areas of where the company needs to work, what, what they need to work on. I really appreciate that uh, that approach of taking, you know, the audit of a company because it really individualizes and it like, it doesn't over oversimplify uh, the areas that need to be corrected. You know, like I think that when we look at like the change we think needs to happen in our industry, like on a broad scale, it can feel overwhelming because you're like you're looking at these like massive pools of things that need to change. But when you can like look at your own company um, and be able to like see an organized list of like I can do X, Y, and Z to create you know, this thing into something better, 
that feels like a little bit more manageable, I guess, to like start making change a little bit, like less of this overwhelming, you know, like un like untackleable mountain in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, an an equity, when you get audited as a business, it's no different than if you were audited by the IRS. It's also account. It's also an accountability measure, right? There's right. no, there's no kind of ability to kind of say, well, we didn't know, or we weren't sure. You know, you 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 do know. You were made clear. <laughs> you were you were given information, um, and so um, that's kind of the purpose. And it's not to say that everything that you know an auditor may say, hey, this you know this and this and this. It's not to say that all of those things need to be handled immediately oftentimes everything can't be handled immediately um but it is to at least start to say all right well how are we going to change the way that we operate within the business so that these things can seem closer to being a reality um rather than something that seems like a really big hurdle to get to yeah absolutely and you know on the the last episode that i had with the uh the women of support staff we talked about like that accountability factor and how in some ways it's really great, but in other ways it's like, it can almost like people are sometimes afraid to take that step to, to being held accountable. Right. So it's like, you have to be able to I think, accept. I think Sorry. people with privilege, I think it's important to know people with privilege are often the people who really have a hard time taking accountability. Yeah. Absolutely. I think it's important to always differentiate that. Because I hear a lot of conversation in she where people are like, it's really hard. And more, more often than not, those are actually people who have had access, whether they realize it or not, on a greater term than someone else within the industry, right? Right. Who has not. And accountability is not hard, right, when you have a lack of choices. Right. And so even within the hospitality industry, there's a lack of recognition that there is a hierarchy and a and a very large swath of people who don't even have access at the at the same level as like a bartender at some of these like top 50 bars. Um, totally. So yeah, I think that I just think it's important to say that because I don't I don't actually think accountability is hard. I think I think we we Americans are not taught um, are often not groomed in communities that have accountability um, right. it, and see it's accountability like... as punitive. Yeah, like it's almost like people don't want to be held accountable because they don't want to have less options or they don't want to, they don't want to lose something. So if they're not being held accountable, then they kind of have all of the things, even if those are like things that are harming uh, their employees or their coworkers or whatever it may be. So yeah. like if you're being held accountable, then you have to accept that some of those things are going to go away. Right. Um, there is, you know, I think, I think, and sometimes, no, nothing's going to go away, right? It just requires, I think, a better way of, like, putting it would be accountability acts for awareness and consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so rarely is creating something more accessible or asking people to be accountable for how they show up in the space going to take away anything for anything, but it will ask you to be a more aware of how you operate. And right. I think, um, I think for people who are not used to having to, you know, we live in, we live in a country that is very much about the individual. And so if you have been raised all your life, specifically, if you have been raised white, cis, and heterosexual, or the combination of all three, right, you've been told very much, you have had affirming, affirming conversations and language throughout your whole life that is telling you that you are an individual that is able to do whatever they want. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time that you're being told that there's a whole swath of people who are being told something opposite, which is that the your quality of life is conditional based on how another group of people perceives you and engages with you, which grooms one population to understand that their behavior is not an individual, but reflective um, of not only others of their cohort, but two others in a different cohort, and it raises the other population to never account for how they put out information or operate within the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, 
I really appreciate getting to talk with you about these things because it's helpful to hear you like your perspective and it's a perspective that I've never you know had to experience even as a person who you know has worked in the industry and felt you know maybe taken advantage of by my employers or uh, or by my customers or whatever it may be um I appreciate being able to hear that even so like there's so much different between the things that I experienced because of you know my skin color and like where I was raised, my my class of my family and everything like that, that. There's so much that I still don't understand or haven't experienced. Yeah, and I think I don't think it's like a all or nothing. I think we all. I mean, hospitality industry. I think one of the reasons why it, you know, what's really interesting about it is that it does have these. It does have its own language. It has its own culture. Hospitality has its own culture if you're within it and you've been within it for a long time that I think means that we all have this shared experience. Um, right. And I think what's what's great about that though is that like, I think one of the things that us as a culture in America have to get really used to understanding is that experience isn't a fixated point but rather a spectrum of overlapping things that are in, having overlapping things that are in common. Um, it's more like a Venn diagram, right? Right, yeah. Then it is a fixated point, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, that that kind of brings us a little bit toward, towards a point that you and I had chatted a little bit about before we started recording, which is like our shared experience within this industry um, and the history of working for tips. Um, and I've been looking forward to talking with you about this because, you know, um, you know, I'm not a historian and I've, you know, I've not admittedly have not even done much work into really reading the history of, of where this comes from. But, you know, in the last year or so, I've been, I've become aware of the fact that working for tips, um, you know, comes from a, you know, a relatively dark place, um, especially for, for black Americans. And, I would love to just chat with you about that a little bit, um, especially being that it's it's Black History Month. Um, you know, because yeah, that's, a I mean, that's a topic that's come up a lot on this podcast is just like the mental effects of working for tips, but there's a whole different perspective of it, which is like just the history alone of that culture. Yeah. I think it's really important that we that we take stock of a couple of different things because the history of tipping, it, while it, it is based off of slavery and is was directly meant and is an anti-black practice that was meant to harm um, newly freed slaves, which I'll get to in a minute. I think it's mm -hmm. really important, and I'm I'm seeing this a lot, um, and I'm actually going to post about it this month. But I think what I'm seeing a lot now that this has become a hospitality-wide conversation, I want to be clear that one, I've been talking about this probably my whole career. Um, which and I find it interesting now that we've gone through a pandemic. There are so many white people who are now really, and other people who are now interested in having this conversation. Um, and the reason why I bring that up is not to shame anybody who now is understands why tip, tipping is problematic, but it is right. to talk about the ways in which um, it is to talk about the ways in which we want to divide. Cap, we want to always compartmentalize capitalism from racial injustice when the mm -hmm. two are in fact bedfellows and they cannot be they cannot be compartmentalized they are mutually inclusive tools like right. and i think that um talking about tipping is one of the best examples to see that so most people, we grow up hearing about segregation, but most people do not grow up hearing or knowing about 1865 labor laws. Um, after in, in preparing for the 13th Amendment to be signed, Abraham Lincoln, I said that right. I did say that right. I believe I said that right. Um, Abraham, I sometimes get my amendments mixed up. Uh, Abraham Lincoln uh, signed in uh, 1964, signed it, and in preparing for these, this to be signed and knowing that the slaves were going to be freed, states, not just in the South, all over this country, begin to pass what are called Black Codes. 
So they were laws specifically targeted at uh, newly free slaves or free slaves in the area period. And that restricted what kind of jobs they could have. Uh, it put caps on their ability to make money. So one of the things that we really need to talk about in the hospitality industry is how hospitality industry is basically an extension of domestic labor. Um, you don't, the average, you know, we now think of going out to eat in restaurants and things of this nature as a regular American custom. But we have to remember that the United States didn't really have a middle class until you get really until the 1950s. The term isn't even used until you get into the 60s. The first study is done in, I think, 1958. I think it's um, used in a newspaper article in, for the first time in 63. Um, I can double check those things for you so you can have them in your description. But I think, you know, it's important for people to remember that that means that there was a really wealthy class and a really poor class, right? And so, how people entertained back then was really, really different. And your domestic laborers were often doing multiple roles, including being your caterers, your bartenders, things of that nature. Um, and that doesn't mean that there were, there were, of course, gentlemen clubs. We also know that there were steakhouses, there were hotels. Yes, it does not mean that there was no dining out culture or people thing, but this was for the ultra wealthy. And you have to remember that just because slavery ended, it doesn't mean even abolitionists, and I think this is something that a lot of people have to get, it does not mean that people wanted Black people to have the same rights as white people. At this time, white people didn't even want immigrant white people to have the same rights as them. Right. So they really are going to want Black people to have the same rights as them. They don't, they don't even want the Irish. They don't want Jewish people. Like They don't want anybody other than WASP people who identify as was to have this type of leverage and access to power. And so these black codes basically stated that, and they were a little bit different um, in each state, but essentially they stated that former slave owners could decide what they wanted and they could pay them in tips because basically Former slave owners were like, I'm not going to pay black people to do a job they've been doing for free and they should do for free. And so that everybody is very, very clear. When I say that this is a suspension of domestic labor, it's not like this lasted from 1865 and then just stopped at uh, 18- No, no, no. It, it, it has continued throughout this whole process. It's morphed and it's changed, but it has continued since then. And so it was so degrading and dehumanizing, what would happen is, is it was essentially another form of slavery. Oftentimes these domestic laborers, cooks, things of this nature were required to live on property with their employer. Mm -hmm. um, and they were often, and if they would have to get permission to leave the premise, this is after slavery, remember, they would have to get permission to like leave the premise. And if they were caught off premise, they had to have papers signed by an employer. Now, for anybody who doesn't understand why this is so messed up, it, it's not only because you are restricted, you're, they're basically living in slavery still, right? Right, in yeah, that's states, what I was about you to say. Allowed, like, you, in some states, you actually are still allowed to whip your employees as a punishment right. in places like Mississippi and Alabama. So this is still very much, and this goes on for everybody who doesn't think this, this goes on until basically the early 1900s. This is happening, right? And so the other part of this that people don't seem to get is that this is also when you get vagrancy laws, and this is also when you get the prison system. Mm -hmm. And so all of these things are tied together. Basically, there was a loophole just because slavery ended, did it mean that cotton still wasn't an important crop that the, that the Americas needed to make money off of, right? right? You still need that labor force. And one of the ways that they were able to get it was by conning people into lifetime contracts. Yes, there were many people who were, who were conning the lifetime contracts. If you're a former slave, the chances that you can read or write are very, very slim. Right. So you're not going to be able to read a contract that somebody's giving contract, you. How, yeah, how are you going to read a contract? And this right. is how like a lot of really shoddy, messed up sharecropping things went down, right? 
How how does somebody know that they signed a lifetime? Sometimes they didn't just sign a lifetime. Sometimes they they signed a family contract, meaning that basically there are stories of people signing for like four generations, living on the same plot of land, working for the same family that owned them and never have moved because no one could read. And it wasn't until generations later that they had realized that they had signed a contract that had basically put them in indentured servitude for generations. Right. So when we talk about the, the history of tipping, I think it's one important to understand. It's not just a hospitality thing. It extends to agricultural workers. It extends to domestic laborers, even now to this day. Right. Um, okay. And that's something it, which is paying them low wages thing. But I think the other thing that we really need to discuss um, if we're going to talk about the impact of tipping is to talk about how how there's been a double-edged sword uh, against Black, Indigenous, people of color when it when talking about tipping, about the racialized stereotypes about people of color not tipping, and mm-hmm. at the same time, the racial stereotypes coming from guests on right. not tipping people African. who are Black, Indigenous, people of color right. well, right? Yeah. And based off of the color of their skin and making yeah. assumptions about them or their service or just not even allowing them to give them great service, right? Right. Because they have so many assumptions about that. And that is like the thing that no one is talking about in the hospitality industry. But then another thing that no one is talking about is that tipping isn't inherently bad. And that's the thing that like we, we let me change that. The foundation of history is faulty and it's anti-Black. However, the other thing that no one talks about and people just like to skip from is talking about the foundation of how tipping started, but never talking about the reconstruction era and how tipping, before we get into the point that we have the Alcohol and Tax Bureau, um, which has now changed its name, but that's what it was originally called, Mm -hmm. before we got to having that, how actually hospitality would be the area that started creating a Black middle class. Right. And would actually begin to allow Black people to have access to financial stability. Right. Um, And this and and that is why we have to talk about it, because to this day, because it lacks because of the lack of credentials you need to be in the hospitality industry, um, this is the most accessible industry, meaning that you're formerly incarcerated, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color, people... All of these people, this is one of the most accessible areas for people to get a job in and technically could still rise within the ranks. Now, we know that implicit bias is real and that that's not statistically we know that many people, Black, Indigenous, people of color and women do not actually reach the highest ranks, specifically women of color in this industry no longer. But that wasn't always true. Right. Yeah. I mean... I, you literally hit the nail on the head. I mean, like it is one of the very few industries left in our, in our country where you can have, you know, no higher education, um, you know, something prior on your record and at least get an an entry level job. Um, But then the, you know, like you're right, the, the issue from there on is whether or not you actually are able to continue to advance in your career. Right. And this is why we actually have to discuss the reason why I personally am struggling with this conversation of blanket, no tipping or tipping, because the conversation that we really need to have is America, the average consumer does not understand that America is a service economy. Mm -hmm. Meaning that Americans think that what they do when they sit down in most places is that they are paying for a product and not a service. Absolutely. And and that's actually part of the issue. And we've seen that play out through the pandemic, right? Right, because I was going to say like, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. So like, it's like, it's the whole conversation that I've had with, you know, like really close friends is that, 
like you said, when they think they're paying for the product and not the service, they are willing to pay $12 for their margarita. And then they will tip you maybe 20% on top of that. But if they were to be told that their margarita was $15, which is inclusive of the service they're being provided, that's too much money and they don't want to buy the margarita, even right. though, even though it's the, they're paying the same regardless. So the reason why it is important to always remind people who originally were the bears and the founding people of a hospitality industry, which were the enslaved people, black people and indigenous people. The reason why we always must go back to that and must continue to have a conversation about is because remember that the service model of America used to be be seen and not heard. Why do you mm -hmm. think that is? Right? Yeah, service people were supposed to be invisible. Right. You are not supposed to be a prominent part. So we've built a culture in America where we've basically hidden, made sure to keep service professionals as a invisible piece, uh, invisible piece of the process, right? right? And when I say invisible, obviously I don't mean literally people, like obviously people interact with servers, bartenders, things of this. But the issue is, and this goes back to actually why there's so many poorly behaved consumers is because when consumers go into a space, whether they realize it or not, most of them don't think that they just bought the experience. They also think that they bought the actors within the experience. Right. Yeah. It, it, so it reminds me of two different things. So in the, in a, an episode with Laura Louise Green, she and I were talking about this and she said that the moment that she realized exactly what you just explained was that she was working behind the bar and this woman was just taking pictures of the bar and didn't even think to ask her like, do you mind if I take your picture? You know, it was like she was a fixture within the bar um, and not a person. Right. And then um, similarly, you know, it's like uh, my, my partner and I have been like having these conversations about tipping and the, there's always the whole thing about like, oh, well, then you're going to get service like you do in Europe. And he was like, I had this moment when I realized that Europeans like don't, they don't give bad service. Like there's the whole thing where it's like, you're sitting at the table and you're like, when is my server going to bring me more water? And then he, you like ask for more water and they bring it to you. And he's like, it's just because it's like, they're not, they're not expected to know everything that you want. It's like, if you need something, you just ask well, for it and then they'll right. bring it to you. So <laughs> you know? American, American service is about emotional labor. It's right. about anticipating the needs. And again, this is why we can't separate issues that have to do with class, race, or identity away from having this conversation. Because the fact of the matter is, is that Black people and, and Black people who were doing the work, doing these roles and doing these jobs, do you think it would have been acceptable for them to blatantly and directly ask white people or be like, what is it that you need? Or, right, da -da -da -da, right. or I didn't know that. They, no, no. Your job right. was to anticipate. And even if we chase the race out of it, let's just talk about class dynamics and how people who have money expect people without money to treat them. Mm -hmm. They expect you do the labor of meeting their needs. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I think that one, there's, a, there's been a lack of transparency for too long about what food actually costs, what mm -hmm. skills actually cost. I mean, I think that we have to have a very real conversation about the different placement of hospitality. You know, I, I know there's a lot of people out there who are all like, fuck corporate, you know, food places or restaurants. And I'm gonna say right now, that's a, that's a fucked up in classes position to have. Um, like at the end of the day, we need all, all of these forms. Like we need all of these forms of hospitality. What we need is just more transparency and clear direction about what are the different levels. I mean, one of the things that I'm working on for my book is basically stating that we need to define the different stratifications of the hospitality industry. Mm -hmm. um, and that they need to be different, not only for financial purpose, but they need to be different in terms of helping the consumer understand where they're, where they are, where, what's the difference in spectrum between technical um, capabilities and also the value in soft skill management. Um, because 
we live in a country that does not think being able to navigate, I shouldn't say navigate, being able to manage and negotiate emotional labor is a hard skill. Right. And it doesn't need to be a hard skill for it to be valuable. But what we do have to explain to people is how actually the things that they love about dining out, even in these prestigious places, is often the skill that we consider that is the least technical. Right. Yeah. Or the one that uh, nobody teaches, right? You know, like that you learn often by through mistakes or there's no guidebook really, you know, to being taught how to handle emotional labor. Right. Um, and that's, but there are people who are naturally more skilled at it than others, right? As well. And generally that has to do a lot about maybe how their, what their environment has been like throughout their life and how they've had to manage. But I think a really great example of speaking to what you're talking about is what people are willing to spend in New Orleans versus what people are willing to spend in New York City. Mm -hmm. And yes, of course, cost of living and everything is impacting this, but let's just strip it away and let's say that the cost of living was the same in both places, right? Sure, people, yeah. I, New Orleans is a black city. And people will rave and rave and rave about the service, the people, how amazing it is. But people will refuse to tip people here in the ways that they would tip in New York City. Yeah. Well, and it, I mean, it, in addition, even like even if you're talking about the cost of living, the people enjoying those experiences in New Orleans are often visitors from probably somewhere with a higher cost of living. Right. So they're, I, you know, arguably they would be accustomed to whatever your, you know, an average tip percentage would be. Uh, right. Where they're coming from. Right. But I, I've watched here and been in the industry here and I've watched people who I know would go out of their way to tip outrageous amounts if they were in a different city, right? I've watched them be here and be like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, blah, blah. And, and, it, and it's definitely racialized, right? It's about what do you think people's value is based on where they live? Um, and what do you think people's capabilities are based on where they live? And, that, and that's also tied to the same things, that same thinking. Um, and, you know, I think, I think I would change the language. I wouldn't say that there, I don't, I don't think tipping itself, uh, tipping itself as a structure is what causes the mental strife. I think it is the, I think it is the way that we, interact with capitalism in this industry that is the mental struggle. Because, and, and, I, and I say that because even let's say you get out of and you get to a salary position within the industry, like a higher management job, mm -hmm. I would argue that your, those same stressors do not go away. As a matter right. of fact, they may even intensify because at least when you are at the ground level, there is a certain amount of decision-making that you have with each guest to decide how much labor and energy you're going to put into it. Right. Right? You can, you can manage who you're going to lean into and who you're not, right? And you have that, whether you realize you do it consciously or not, this is something that everyone does, right? And... I, as a, someone who's in higher leadership, it, it asks of different things and it actually asks for you to stop looking, you know, yeah, that's another conversation, but yeah, <laughs> I, I would say, I would say it's the way our industry engages with capitalism because it's an issue at every level. Yeah. Well, you know, and that, so this has been something that I've been thinking about a little bit too. It's like the way that, you know, like labor laws are written in the United States, it's like, it protects the hourly worker, but 
there's like no protections really written for the salaried worker. Right. I mean, definitely not in our industry. Right. You know, it's like, okay, like, you know, more often than not, you hear in our industry, the whole like, oh, well, we can put them on salary so we don't have to pay them overtime anymore. Or right. you know, they don't have right. to take breaks, you know, because a, right. a salaried manager isn't given any breaks right. by law. I mean, I'll be really honest. I think that like a lot of management um, within our industry, um, a lot of managers and some people are going to be upset about this, but I don't care. A lot of managers who are mid-level management are are basically just overseers. Oh, for sure. Yeah. That's, we, that's we what they are. Problem that, 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 Like, you're basically just overseers. Um, and it, one, speaks to the lack of trust that we often have for line staff and their disposability. Um, but it also speaks to the lack of actual management skills higher management actually has. So many people within who are owners and in higher management within this industry rely on shared experience as a way to evaluate who can be trusted and who is capable of their skills. And very few actually have have, have actual standards that measure people not just on technical basis, but across hard and soft skills. Right, yeah, like I was, I literally just asked this in the last episode too, it's like how many places have you worked in that you got like a quarterly or yearly review where you like talk about not just like, you know, where you actually talk about your entire performance um, and have measurable ways to talk about it, right? Not just like you did this wrong, but like measurable way to look at it. Right. Right. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a, we can go a million different ways with that conversation. I mean, I thought, you know, I, this industry is really the ways in which it has um, reshaped history and retold stories for the benefit of white men is always alarming and astounding to me. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a lot of hospitality people who are eagerly now interested in changing the way we make money in this industry because it directly impacts their lives. Um, but that speaks to the fact that they were already in a privileged position before the pandemic because right. this has been a reality. What, what a lot of people are going through right now has been the reality for so many um, for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I definitely, I certainly is a, a shame or I mean, shame is not really the right word, but you know, it is, it's unfortunate that it took this past year for a lot of people to start having that conversation, but I hope that it doesn't detract from, you know, the possibilities yeah. moving forward. I mean, no, I think, I think you definitely hope both. I mean, I think though that we have to call that into attention because I think what I'm seeing now, which is a, which I find very problematic is a lot of white people stepping into the space to advocate for something they just found out about that people of color have traditionally and specifically women of color have been organizing around for decades. Right. There was conversations as far back as the eighties about tipping being harmful. Right. You know, and no one was interested. So I think I think that's why I bring it up. And then I also bring it up because, um, you know, that says a lot about who we listen to and who we hear from. If you're someone who just is joining this conversation, that's great. But then you need to ask yourself why. Why? What's this like? Why now? And who have I been listening and talking to? And why is this just now on my radar? Um, And I also bring it up because. I'm sorry, $15 an hour is not a lot of money. No. And I bring this up because getting rid of a tip wage doesn't suddenly mean we've given people a livable wage. Right. And that really needs to be addressed because I see, like, let's just use Danny Meyer as an example, who no shade towards Danny Meyer he at least tried, he experimented, he attempted to go to a non-tip wage. He also lost a lot of employees after he did that because the amount of money that we're making drastically 
drop. Right. And that did not, some people were not no longer able to live a comfortable lifestyle. Right. We yeah, yeah, I mean, there's to, a lot. Go ahead. We have to, yeah, we have to, we can't, I just see a lot of bandwagoning on getting rid of tip wages. And what I don't see is a lot of, uh, a lot of conversations, honest conversations coming from owners on how they're going to make, how the staff's going to then make a living wage. And what I also see is something that I find incredibly problematic. And it is that I see a lot of chefs talking about front, blaming front of the house workers, which I right. think is disgusting. Um, and I think it's super inappropriate because front of the house workers are like, it's basically, and this is why it's so gross is because they don't even realize that basically it sounds like them comparing field slaves against house slaves. That's what it sounds like. That's what this, that's exactly the, it's the same thing. Oh, front of the house gets treated better. They make more money, right? Right. And they work less hours. Like they make house, higher hourly. They work They make higher hourly. Back of the house, which back of the house works way harder and has say, actually, both are hard jobs. And they're mm-hmm. hard for different reasons. And they require a different skill set. Equating them. It's just pointless. Equating yeah. them is it, pointless. And yeah. what's funny to me, it's, it's that it's owners who, if there is a system that is problematic between front of the house and back of the house workers, it is the leadership who has generally created that culture. So it's, yeah, I just need to say that because it, that's exactly what it sounds like. And every time I hear a chef say it, it makes me cringe. Because right. it shows me how little they devalue the ability to create an experience and to be able to emotionally negotiate with complete mm-hmm. strangers. Right. Yeah. I'm, I really appreciate you saying that because it's something that I've like, I've, you know, struggled with personally when I'm like, you know, whatever, like ready to get out for the night, but the kitchen's still cleaning and I feel guilty because I worked less hours and made more money. And it's not that, you know, that's an important, you know, conversation to have with myself about like, you know, there's not, it's not that it's neither good nor bad, like evil nor good or whatever it may be, but they, they are different jobs. Um, and they require different skill sets. Kitchens don't have to operate the way that they do. Right. There are plenty of businesses who are operating in ways, in kitchens in ways that allow their line staff to have a life. Mm-hmm. It requires creativity. It requires more work. It may require a different payment structure, but it is possible. And I just want people to stop blaming the fact that they have chosen not to be creative in the way that they structure their business on their laborers. Right. It's not their laborers' yeah. fault. There's actually a really great restaurant in Denver, um, Hop Alley, and they pay their line cooks a uh, salary and they all work four days a week. And I know other businesses who have done that. I also know right. businesses that swap everybody in the kitchen. Right. So that everybody in the kitchen literally does every world so that there's no hierarchy, but everybody gets paid the same because at some point, right, you work every position. Right. So there's no animosity. There's no, issue, you know what I mean? There's no problem and they all get paid a living wage and they work four days a week. Right. I think exactly. they actually do a, I think they actually do a flip-flop, which I think is really cool, which is that um, they do a track system. So two, week, two, two weeks in a row, you work four, four. And then the other two weeks you work three, three, you get paid the same amount, but right. it just allows you to flop. Yeah. There's also another, there's a restaurant in Denver, um, or it's like a pretty famous like brew pub where they actually cross train their entire staff on FOH and BOH. So like you might work the line, you might work behind the bar, like you got to do Let me tell you, let me tell you how many people in our industry are classless and don't even realize it. When I worked at the Ace Hotel, I tried to, I tried to turn my staff to where there were no such thing as cocktail servers or a bar back. All mm-hmm. we had was bartenders and you swap and you switched your shifts. And the right. point of this was so that 
our backs could actually get time practicing bartending, right? Because their duties as bar backs were so overwhelming, they rarely got the chance to actually learn anything. So this what it is, but it would also mean that every single person on the floor can adequately talk about drinks because they know how to make them. Right. And they could talk about what was behind the bar because they, they work with it, right? And all of my bartenders had an issue with it. Right, yeah. Every like- single bartender had an issue with it. And I said to them, I was like, this shows that your classes. Because if you're making the same money, why would you care? Why do you care? Right. Why would you care? And it shows, and, and that alone, and in so many of our restaurants and bars, and hospitality structures, we just have to talk about the fact that we we do, um, we give value to certain positions over others. Right. And I don't care how much we say, like, I love my bar back, I did it, like, unless you adequately paid your bar, I, I, I was the queen of tipping my bar, bar back extra and being like, I know this is the same, but like, you really helped me out, blah, blah, and splitting tips and stuff. Unless... We, we really just need to discuss that that hierarchy and that value system is also part of the problem. And same thing yeah. with back of the house. Same thing. Yeah, are you, I mean, are you kidding me? Like anytime we've ever had to rearrange on the fly and I've gotten to hostess for a shift instead of fucking shake 250 cocktails in a night, I'm stoked. Like so stoked. I love hosting. Are you kidding me? Like I get a day just like manage the floor, direct the whole operation and like not have to shake a fucking drink. Like best night ever. I love those. Right. And I'm not saying, and it's totally okay to be like, I prefer doing this over this. Right. But I think you're not too good for it. But I think that people acting like they're too good to serve or too good to the thing. It's like really gross and it's classic. And it also shows that you like don't value that hospitality is an ecosystem on every single level. And every single level, it's an ecosystem. Like whether we're talking about a mom and pop operation, it doesn't go without multiple members doing the work. We could be talking about a damn food truck, right? right. Like it is a ecosystem that is reliant on others. Even if we break it down is that you literally can't sell food and drinks without distributors, people creating wine and things. Like we are basically third party sellers. Right. That's what we are. Right. right. And so <laughs> there's no way anybody in this industry can do anything and not be dependent on someone else. Right. And arguably, if you had to work all those positions before you were trained to do the one that you perceive as like, you know, better now than like, like, why wouldn't you be willing to go do that job again for a night? Anyway, well, I feel like we could talk about well, this that's because, <laughs> because I would say, I mean, but also we have a whole new age of bartenders who actually didn't have to do other didn't jobs. Didn't have to do it. Yeah. And, I, and that's actually part of the issue. Right. It, like, honestly, if you ask me that, it, that is actually part of the issue. I don't believe that anybody should be able to walk in the door and, uh, and automatically be able to get behind the bar. Yeah, of course not. I mean, yeah, it's 100% the issue um, with a capital T. Um, oh my gosh, this conversation has been really awesome. Ashton, I really have, have enjoyed getting to spend my, uh, my morning chatting with you. Um, but yeah. we are, we're definitely at, <laughs> at our time limit for the podcast, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I hope we got everything you needed out of it. No, it's been amazing. Um, for, for everyone listening, like how can they, how can they find your businesses and, and you, if they need to, or want to, I'm yeah, I'm on Instagram at the collectress, T-H-E-C-O-L-L-E-C-T-R-E-S-S. Um, that's where I post all my educational stuff, my emails and my bio there. Um, radical exchange has a website is radxc.com and my personal website will be out by the end of this month awesome um all right so i've been kind of swapping it up i i was ending the show uh with some booze related questions but um i think that i'd just like to end today with um you know i'd love to hear from you the 
advice you have for for owners and and business operators who are looking to start holding themselves accountable um what you know what would be your advice to them on where to start and uh and how to go about just holding themselves more accountable? um i would say really be realistic about what you can do um it's great to have lofty dreams and big of and and thoughts and desires for big sweeping change but big sweeping change isn't actually how anything transforms um, they're rare. And even if they do happen, it still took a lot of small actions and commitments to get there. Um, so be realistic about what you can change and what you want to change. And also be realistic about if you have the skill set to do that transformation on your own. Um, I think we've got to get a lot better in hospitality about owning where we don't have expertise um, and, at, and, and acknowledging where we may need help. Um, and I would say the next thing is that like diversity does not mean just hiring black people um, or just hiring people of color or just hiring. Um, I keep hearing like, it's like the number one thing when people reach out to me to hire me is like, yeah, we're just like, no one applies and we just want to hire people. And it's like, that's great. That's amazing that you want to diversify your staff. How is your staff going to cope once you hire them? What structures do you have in place to make sure that they can actually navigate and be sustainable within your business? Um, and that brings me to my last part is that if you don't actually even under have an understanding as an owner of where you're privileged, where you need to grow, where you have an understanding of how oppression actually works structurally and interpersonally, you can't actually be a tool for your business to grow. So if you want to see your business change, start with you. I love that. Um, I hope that people hear that and, and listen. Uh, well, I hope that you have a really wonderful rest of your day and weekend and, um, Oh, and almost happy Mardi Gras, I guess. Almost there. Yeah, we are. I mean, no celebrating going on this year, but yeah, yeah. we are. We're almost there. Yeah. Thank we you got so some much. Kinkai got the bar. Thanks, Ashton. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Bye. This episode was brought to you by our wonderful sponsor, Most Imaginative Bartender. To learn more about the Most Imaginative Bartender competition and the Canvas project, go to mostimaginativebartender.punchdrink.com. Make sure to tune in every Monday for new episodes of Focus on Health, and don't miss No Proof with Joshua Gandy every other Wednesday.